Welcome to the Green Element Podcast, where we meet business leaders and innovators, transforming their operations to be more environmentally and socially sustainable, and in the process, help you on your sustainability journey. I'm your host, Will Richardson. Our guest today is Vijay Eswaran, the Executive Chairman of the QI Group. Vijay was named as one of Asia's top 50 philanthropists by Forbes and has received a Lifetime Achievement Award for regional philanthropy in recognition of his outstanding contribution to the ASEAN community. Welcome, Vijay. Morning, Will. You have an amazing and impressive and extensive list of credentials. And you've been involved in so many incredible projects to empower people and support the environment. Well, um, to begin with, the QI group of companies is a diversified multinational. It is uh, presence around the world uh, through business interests in e-commerce, uh, direct selling, education, travel, leisure, lifestyle, and retail. So basically, we have uh, built over the last 23 years or so uh, a conglomerate that spans, uh, you know, three, uh, sorry, four out of the five continents. So in a sense, uh, we began here in Asia, and although all of our activities at first glance may be rather varied and diverse, the common thread that runs through our businesses is that each entity is driven by a desire to make positive social impact. And in one way or another, involved in local communities working towards making a difference in the world around us. We have basically around 10 businesses in different parts of the world, 2,000 people across Asia, Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. We are pretty diverse. And uh, last I checked, we have close to 40 different nationalities working in the group. And they speak amongst themselves uh, somewhat around 50 different languages. So when we actually get together, it's somewhat <laughs> like a mini United Nations. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that'd be amazing. Yes, it is. It is. It's a bit like traveling, um, but without leaving your own um, country. Constantly, because you'll be speaking to people from different cultures, and that's that's the um, the most exciting part about traveling, isn't it? It's learning about people's cultures and learning about people and how they interact with each other. And in today's times, what's really fascinating is like we, you know, it's all about Zoom calls and Zoom conferences mm-hmm. and Zoom meetings, mm-hmm. and in 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 some sense, we have actually become a lot closer. As yeah. a result of the current situation, we are we are talking to each other much more, and perhaps you know uh, more swiftly. Uh, but it, it is uh, fascinating to see how all of these various cultural differences in this hegemony uh, come together when we need to. That's the most important thing, I think. We we know that there are cultural differences within meetings. Uh, I'm kind of veering off veering off on a tangent now, but uh, when you meet people face to face, so there's certain etiquette that you have to do between each cultures, and there's a way of communicating to each other. Now, as someone that speaks to people in lots and lots of different countries all the time, is it as pronounced that difference in cultures on Zoom calls, or is it much more universal? It is, um, it is a little bit of both. 
Okay, the differences are uh, the fact is that translation, uh, you know, happens uh, simultaneously and it does slow down the process. I have to wait, you know, uh, maybe 30 seconds after to see whether the joke had an impact or not. So, for instance. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it does slow things down somewhat. But having said that, uh, at the same time, what I have realized is people laugh about the same things. They cry about mm. the same things. They feel about the same things. And ultimately, that's what, you know, makes us come together. So I reached out to cite, uh, the common thread, our planet, our world, our environment, and our future, which is basically our kids. And in that sense of the word, um, I usually find a common uh, playing field, a common platform where we can meet and, and talk. So this has been, you know, my secret. That makes sense. So where does your passion for sustainable development come from? Well, uh, basically, you know, when we started the company, we were pondering as to, because we wanted to, um, you know, kind of uh, find a, a business icon, per se, someone that uh, was respected uh, across the world and uh, someone that, uh, in a sense, uh, could lead our initiatives. And in that sense of the word, we were identifying a number of people ranging from Mother Teresa, Mandela, Martin Luther King, and the likes. We eventually settled on Mahatma Gandhi. And why Gandhi? Because Gandhi actually went back to the roots. He went back, you know, essentially to, um, you know, weaving his own clothing for a start. He cannot get more sustainable than that. Are you with me? And uh, he was a man who, who basically believed in reviving the culture of the villages. And uh, these, these are things that we found a common thread in. And interestingly enough, you know, I've traveled across most of Africa, so parts of Europe and, you know, uh, even Central Asia and the like, there's no country I've been to who doesn't recognize the man. And uh, what's unique about him, he wasn't a general, he wasn't a politician, he belonged to no particular, you know, uh, political train of thought, he never held a position, he didn't even accept citizenship in India when India was formed because he was at that point in a, in, a, in a state where he didn't want to accept the partition. So all of these factors made him a man of the world, the man of the millennium, so to speak. Now, what we identified from him was in the fact that we need to go back to our roots. One of his most famous statements that still rings in my ears, he says, I welcome the wind from every corner of the world. Every window in my house will be open to receive winds from all corners of the world, but my feet will be remain imprinted in my motherland. So um, in that sense, we have tried to do things in that way. Uh, Gandhi was a visionary and uh, an advocate for sustainability and social justice. So there are issues that we have taken as relevant. You know, it's 100 years ago and during his time, but he was the original poster for sustainability. And the message, I think, went viral during his lifetime. So, you know, these are the key factors. But when my partners and I began this company, we all came from different countries. And so Gandhi became a rallying point because we came from different faiths, different cultures. 
And when we first came together and started discussing our, you know, interests, Gandhi was uh, someone we all agreed upon. So we actually picked up a little parable, which was um, when Gandhi was um, in his ashram in South Africa, in his early part of his, of his career, so to speak. He had volunteers come from all over, you know, to come and join his fight for freedom, so to speak. Uh, and what I remember from the story is that a young man turned up and he was basically working, cleaning out the latrines, you know, the outdoor toilets in the ashram. And Gandhi came across him and said, uh, so who are you, young man? You're a new face and all that. So the guy goes, I, I just uh, left my degree in engineering to come over here and serve you. I'm here to just basically, uh, you know, I want to be able to uh, sacrifice or, or, or give my life in your service. So he looked at him and he says, all oh, that sounds great. But you see, <laughs> sweeping latrines, I get a lot of those guys. You know, mm -hmm. gardeners, sweepers, all of that. First, you need to go out there and be the best person you can be. Then bring those skill sets to me because I need lawyers, engineers, I need professionals. So what he said in his final words was, young man, go raise yourself. Then together we can help mankind. So I took those words, which is raise yourself to help mankind. And that actually stood for our slogan, which is the acronym is rhythm. Raise yourself to help mankind. So rhythm has become our passion, it has become our spirit, it has become our driving force. And in every office, you know, in 42 different offices across the world, you will find rhythm as our slogan. And that has driven us. That is our superpower. And what do you consider to be the biggest impact or biggest success of the Rhythm Foundation? Well, uh, I think, you know, we started off just trying to make a difference, you know, in the lives of the people around us. And we began to do this around three pillars of sustainability that have become our byword, so to speak. All our staff are involved in volunteering in local communities. And many years ago, we introduced a policy that required each staff member to dedicate about 16 hours in a calendar year towards volunteering for whichever course they are, you know, are drawn to. Initially, there was a lot of, um, you know, consternation and questions and, and all of that from the staff. But they actually started participating in various projects and these were wide ranging from picking up trash from the beach, planting trees, to helping with painting and cleaning up orphanages, old age homes, and um, you know, working with the underprivileged. The result was our staff came back and wanted to do more. And that kind of, you know, reestablished my faith in, in humanity, so to speak. Because many of the men were way beyond the required 16 hours because once they realized they were making a difference, it had a deep impact on them. So they contributed way beyond that. And uh, that's one of the things that I think uh, clearly points towards this, um, one of the pillars of sustainability. Next, we are a meat-free and plastic-free organization. Animal agriculture is a significant cause of environmental pollution. It has led to deforestation, 
and you know, in order to make way for pasture land, greenhouse gas emissions, land, water pollution, you know the facts. The details are out there. We may be one small organization in the larger scheme of things, but we firmly believe by refusing to pay for meat in any form or another, we're making a stand and making a difference. Being plastic-free is another thing. We have completely banned the use of single-use plastic from all our offices. We have already committed to transitioning all our products, packaging and merchandising to biodegradable and environmentally friendly materials by 2025. We're also moving towards replacing all our suppliers and vendors uh, who, who, who basically will, with only those who follow responsible and ethical supply chain practices and ha have carbon offset programs. So all this is has also evolved into the families of these of our employees. That's what's amazing. Okay, these are corporate practices, but a lot of the families have decided to do the same in their own homes, mm. you know, and inculcated this into their kids. Now that makes a hell of a lot of difference in my mind. You know, a lot of them will come back to tell us, you know, we don't have plastic at home anymore, you know. Our hotels and resorts in different parts of the world are built to be eco-friendly. They're designed with minimal impact to the environment and they incorporate many natural elements as possible in their making and in their building. And uh, we are right now in the process of building a university campus in Malaysia that will utilize wind and solar energy and will be a carbon-free you know, emissions uh, campus altogether. So electric buses will take people around. There'll be no motor vehicles allowed onto the campus. And, uh, you know, the kids will basically learn to bike or walk all the way across. And I guess most importantly, um, our e-commerce business, which is our essential cash cow or direct selling company, has empowered entrepreneurs to, in many of the developing countries, giving them to build their own businesses as micro-entrepreneurs. Now, to me, that's sustainability in a different form, getting, getting them to stand on their feet and not rely on their government or any other form of handouts to survive. And um, this, in a, in a fashion, has helped also in spreading our culture, thought processes, and our philosophy across, across the five continents. How have you implemented these three pillars uh, when it comes down to running an ethical and sustainable business, I think the biggest challenge we have faced is that people and companies are both capable of building habits. Mm. And it is these habits that we need to break. I mean, we grew up at a time where, uh, you know, single-use plastics and the like were common and, and parents and everyone else did it and it was not... It was not uncommon to throw trash out of your, you know, car window <laughs> as you were traveling. Mm. So sadly, none of these factors actually, you know, um, struck us as being uh, detrimental in any fashion. It's just habits. Mm. So it's the habits that I think are the most important thing uh, that need to be broken. The, the the global trash heaps and greenhouse gas emissions are all a direct product of this generation of habits, you know, generation that had these habits. So I think the biggest challenge is, you know, changing these habits and change is 
the only um, serious uh, effort that can bring all of this about, you know. And, um, you know, I think the millennials uh, and the centennials and now the Gen Alphas are probably, you know, uh, the a sign of uh, positivity because they are a lot more switched on. They are a lot more aware of all of these than we were in at their age. Yeah. You know, most of these global trash heaps were there long before uh, the millennials came about. And they're inheriting this. They're inheriting this world that we have, unfortunately, uh, in a sense, destroyed. And it's now, uh, you know, something that we across generations have to join forces and work together. Change can only come about when we make a conscious effort towards it. And this is about action and repetition, mm. two fundamental things. Uh, essentially, if we don't uh, make this effort at a, at a you know, platform at, a, uh, at the most basic level, we will slip back into you know, old habits. Comfort zones are places where people go to essentially drown themselves. And comfort zones are what has, you know, prevented us from breaking free. Mm. So edging people out of their comfort zone is something that's going to be a struggle, whether it's within our own organization or elsewhere across the world. But when it comes to individual action that could be made to combat, uh, to combat these issues, that's where the real challenge lies. So we need to start at the individual. Each person has to take on his responsibility, his home, his environment, his immediate impact, you know, his neighbors and the like. And if that can happen, then we have a chance. So what sustainability criteria do you consider when you decide to invest in a company? Well, at the end of it, um, we are fortunately in a place where um, we don't need to invest to survive. We invest in order to be able to uh, you know, essentially improve our profitability, which means that we are in a comfortable place whereby we can choose wisely. And um, we uh, we do quite a lot of research into the company itself, its sustainability, uh, sustainable uh, practices, uh, its ethics when it comes to, you know, products and services. And um, it must fit in, it must jive, there must be uh, something that allows us to build a partnership with these companies. So it's not just about investment per se, but also about us coming together in thought and uh, in vision and strategy. So it must be a meeting of the minds. So when we invest, after all the technical data has been analyzed and processed and, and the like, then there's a meeting of us together with the other stakeholders uh, in the investment uh, company. To see whether or not there is an actual bridge that could be built between us. We've had a lot of discussion around greenwashing and businesses that make unfounded, sustainable or ethical claims. I'd be interested to know what your warning signs are. So on the flip side, what red flags do you look out for when you consider investing in a company? Well, let me tell you, we, we after 20 23 years, we'll be 23 years old uh, come September, you know, and um, we have made a lot of uh, bad decisions as well. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I can warn, um, 
you know, those who are up and coming uh, of the potholes. So people essentially, as you say, lie. And that's, that's probably the, 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 short, the shortest way to describe it. You know, it's a, it's a facade uh, of trying to, you know, uh, meet uh, a new system of, uh, you know, sustainable ethics and practices that they want to portray. So they want to be able to show that they are, you know, above board. And sometimes we have believed it. And uh, much, you know, to our dismay, we have had to pull out. So um, in, in particularly in third world countries, the concern is survival, you know, above everything else. I mean, it's, it's fine to sit in Norway or in Scandinavia or somewhere in, you know, Western Europe and sit around and say, talk about ethics and, and you know, values of uh, environmental sustainability and all of that. But when you're sitting in um, a third world nation in Africa, or for that matter, you know, in some places like, say, Nepal or Cambodia, uh, then their, their, their priorities are essentially different. However, the one thing I've found amazing, uh, one, the generations that are up and coming, the millennials, so to speak, wherever you find them, all right, they are of one singular mindset. They recognize the world. And um, somehow the world of the internet and social media has brought them up to par with what's happening out there, you know. Um, and they are they are they are more tuned in. They're more switched on. They're asking the right questions. And in places like Bhutan, for example, all right, uh, they are they are totally in tune with nature and the environment and asking the right questions. So. Um, I think it's about connecting with the right people because in every country we have been to, there is a company that switched on. There is a group of people who are like us. So finding us, you know, uh, finding people like us is the key, I think, uh, as opposed to looking at data and looking at any other, you know, uh, facts that are, you know, pasted in front of you. We need to go behind all that. It will be interesting. I mean, this conversation has so much depth to it because of the because of the ramifications that you have just brought about what i'm trying to get at is business leaders politicians if what you're saying and i've heard this quite a few times across the board you're not the only person to say exactly what you've said about millennials so therefore will it be that we start to have more confidence in younger leaders uh, I could I could add to that by saying that um, what's what's uh, going to make a difference moving forward is the fact that uh, the older generation needs to wake up and recognize uh, what the so-called millennials and tenors and the like I have already come to terms with, and if they do that, that bridge is very important. So, in a microcosm, what we have done within the group is. We made it a policy that in every department, there must be a minimum of 30% uh, millennials or younger. So we have begun to change that. So, you know, with over 2,000 people, that, that's a difference that we can make within our ecosphere. Now, um, the other thing that we are looking at is that this 30% must be reflected all the way up the uh, corporate ladder, which means it's senior positions that I want to be able to see millennials in. 
I want to be able to see them at least in the middle of management and if possible, all the way up to the top level of management. So the target of 30% is something that we have been pushing for. And we're seeing younger and younger people who are probably, arguably, you know, uh, more mature than we were, you know, in their age, and uh, are now contributing. Now, they may not bring a whole lot of experience, obviously, but what they do bring is a different and a fresh insight. So that insight has made a lot of difference to our decision-making processes at every level. You know, we have um, older people sitting down and listening and uh, hearing stuff out. Uh, and, you know, there's, uh, there's of course, a lot of, uh, also a lot of, you know, haggling and disputes and this, that and the other, but there's also a lot of meeting of the minds. I mean, let's take my own home, for instance, you know. Uh, my two girls, and they have two grandmas, okay? The two grandmas basically have been coached by the two girls, you know, how to use social media. <laughs> so the two girls were basically just out of the teens right now. They're just going to university. But during the teens, they are the ones who are basically driving the grandmas. And now both the grandmas are very good on Facebook and what have you, particularly Facebook, you know, posting and catching up and stuff. And that came because of this bridge that was built. And even till today, the girls and the grandmas actually uh, have a far better communication uh, on to the two of them than, than we in between. <laughs> so I put that into practice now in corporate in the corporate world. I'm seeing it. I'm seeing the younger kids. They, uh, well, they're not kids anymore, but they're millennials. So those who are heading out into the 30s and all of that, uh, coming with different insights. You, you might call it a paradigm shift, okay? And that's helped us in products, particularly in understanding, you know, mechanisms uh, within the manufacturing range and workings we have to packaging, distribution, and the whole lives, you know, the whole thing, so to speak. And uh, interesting. Yeah, I was on a, I was on a call yesterday with a international uh, media company, and there were a few people on the call. One of them was younger, and they their industry has set a baseline as last year to be their um, baseline year for emissions. And the person on the call who was older was saying, "But that's really hard because next year we're going to start travelling again, and therefore." What are we going to do? How are we going to reduce from 2020? And I was trying to explain to her that actually, you're not only going to have to reduce from 2020, you're actually probably going to have where you are going to have to almost get to quarter of the emissions from 2020. So it's, and that industry is quite flight heavy. Um, so travel emissions are incredible, a big, big, big part of their emissions and so your whole operations are going to have to change. And I was gently nudging them towards how that could happen. Do you see that for your organization, that operational shift because of climate change and the carbon emissions? It's already happening. Well, the pandemic has helped, you know, considerably, of course. Uh, but, you know, um, there is uh, people are getting used to doing exactly this right now, like, you know, Zoom uh, Zoom conferences, Zoom discussions, and the like. So the, the physical meeting of us having to fly all over the place, 
has become, you know, secondary. So I, I believe that uh, if things were to swing back to some level of, you know, normalcy or whatsoever, there will still be a, a tremendous reduction in terms of the need, the amount of flying we used to do before would be cut down. And uh, probably not just because, uh, uh, because you know, it's difficult or whether it's more expensive or whatever, the second, but because we want it that way. And I think um, we have got used to this right now. I mean, it's actually, I've taken part in more conferences this year uh, than I've ever done before, simply because I could be speaking in Rome one day, and then I could be either in you know, Moscow or in Tokyo the next day without having to you know, change for my sarong. <laughs> you know, I just need to switch on, put on a good shirt each time because fortunately I don't have to stand up, so that's good. But I'm comfortable. <laughs> I'm at you know, I'm at home. I'm in my bedroom slippers. I'm relaxed, and uh, yet I'm participating in this in this you know uh, conferences. You know, and it's particularly amazing to be sitting across from some snooty individuals in their three-piece suits. You know, and. You know, <laughs> You know, waggling your toes away happily in your bedrooms. <laughs> Ultimately, the real change is that, you know, um, I'm very happy doing this. I'm, I'm like, you know, very happy that I don't have to actually get get there. Mm. So traveling, you know, moving forward for business, I think, mm. uh, it would, in my mind, and I'm sure in a lot of others, uh, take a second priority. We decide travel moving forward will be to some business sunny destination where I can dip my feet into the sea or something. <laughs> Since the inception of the QI group in 1998, all your company events and meetings have been plant-based catering, as you alluded to before. Yes. What what has the reception to this been? And has it changed since 1998? Yes, um, absolutely it has changed. I think when we first started out in ninety eight. Uh, it's amazing, but um, a lot of people were stunned, if not, you know, totally like, you know, it's, it's something that hit them up from, uh, you know, left field, as it were. They were not expecting it. You know, it's kind of, why? Uh, what's this all about? You know, are you guys uh, uh, in some form of learning, following some tradition or culture or something of that nature? And uh, our point is, look, guys, we just want to live in a world that is, you know, not uh, not really, uh, that is cruelty-free, let's put it that way. That's cruelty-free without having to, if we can survive without having to kill, that's a big, big step, you know, forward. So that's one. The second thing is, I mean, environmentally, you know, uh, the damage we're doing to our planet is just, you know, unconscionable. It's not acceptable. We've got to, we've got to make a stand somewhere, you know. So, um, and, and the fact is, uh, at that point, I think a lot of people were surprised. Particularly, you know, the strange thing is, a lot more of them were surprised way out in the West than, uh, you know, they were here in, in the East. It wasn't yet fashionable or trendy to, to do this. But, uh, you know, subsequently, you know, the Silicon Valley and um, a few other major companies out there, like Officeworks and the like, started following the same, you know, pattern. And then uh, it became more um, acceptable. Today, uh, it's something we are applauded for. You know, it's known that we have been doing this for as long as we have, and that uh, we are proud of it. And our our employees, you know, are proud of it. 
So, and they come from totally different cultures sometimes, and they relate to it. So, it's amazing. Well, you know, I mean, I got my employees from Turkey the other day, Turkish employees, talking to, you know, people from um, the Ivory Coast and uh, France, and uh, they're all relating to, uh, in the same conference call, they're all relating to this concept of, you know, being vegetarian and plant-based and the likes of it. And you've got a university that has yes. grown from 600 to 3,000 people, um, or students, I should say. And you were talking about the fact that it's being powered by solar and uh, wind energy wind. earlier. Yes. What place does that does the university have within your QI group? Well, let me be absolutely frank. It wasn't part of our initial strategy at the time in terms of corporate strategy because the university is actually a black hole, you know. There, there are certain <laughs> pockets, certain pockets within the, uh, the group that look at it as a black hole of Calcutta, as it were. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it just sucks up more cash than, you know, we ever anticipated. <laughs> but for us, it's a legacy project. Let's put it that way. It's a legacy project. Uh, if we are going to make a difference that is sustainable, that actually carries forward beyond our generation, uh, it has to start there. It has to start at university because there we are able to basically, you know, influence young minds and make them, you know, uh, relate to and understand the value systems that we have evolved ourselves. And what's in, it's important is that there are a lot of very interesting debates that begin there uh, that have come back towards the corporate uh, side, you know, and influenced us. So, you know, it, it's a two-way street. Um, it, it's not a, a profitable exercise for, for sure, but in many ways we are seeing returns that we never expected. Uh, and, and the kids, the kids that come out of there, I mean, we've been doing this now since um, it's a good 10 years, going 11th year right now. So within 11 years, we've had many graduating students uh, who are proud to consider themselves an alumni of Quest University. And Quest International, Quest International University now has established itself. Now, originally, we began with our medical school. Uh, because that's really where we wanted to make the greatest impact in medical practices and the pharmaceutical side, where we felt again that uh, influence has to be uh, has to be actually inculcated. Because you know we need to move away from allopathic medicine. We need to move away from uh, traditional you know treating the symptom met uh, methodology and move into you know, natural healing into uh, traditional uh, Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, and the likes, where we can actually bring this into young doctors' training, where they are open to it. You see, one of the most amazing things is like, you know, out west, meaning the U.S., where I spent seven years of my life, you have this totally disparate, you know, school to talk. And you can have them in the same building, you know, essentially. You got your traditional, you know, various uh, natural healing, alternative, they call it alternative medicine. And then you have the allopathic schools. And essentially, they are, they are basically 
throwing barbs at each other all the way, you know. So I wanted uh, our doctors to come out with an open mind, an open attitude, with the understanding that the old ways actually have, you know, some resonance in today's world. And um, so some of them come up with understanding of acupuncture, others come up with understanding of Ayurvedic uh, yoga and, and, and the likes. Uh, so that uh, that has been uh, one of been one of our original intentions, but now of course we are we have gone into some thirty odd disciplines, and you know uh, many of the degree programs have been added on. So it's a full fledged university today. Okay, That's, I mean it's, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Uh, sadly, this um, I could carry on talking to you for. I've got so many more <laughs> questions to ask you, and I could carry on talking to you for hours. I think um, <laughs> I just want to finish with. What steps would you advise to our listeners to take to enable a low-carbon behavior change in their own organization? You know, I think all change begins from within. And uh, I think it's important that we first must see the need for it and want the want, the desire must come from within. And it's only when that happens, as opposed to us needing to conform to a particular legislation or an outward impulse, that's when change really begins, when it is we wanting it to happen. And in the Gandhi's famous words are, be the change you want to see in the world. And I think it just translates into, you know, if you look within for the answers you seek and for the solutions you need, then the path will emerge. Mm. So, you know, we are, we can be instruments of change. We should not expect the world to change for us. We, on the other hand, tend to find fault with everything. That's where our you know, expertise lies. What we really need to do is find that fault within ourselves. Every problem or fault that we see in the outside world is simply a magnification of something within us. Hmm. Now, if we can actually start to correct that, then everything else would automatically fall into place great advice well thank you so much for joining us today on the sustainable business podcast my pleasure and if you enjoyed today's content why not join our post podcast discussion in our online community at sustainabilitysolved.org we'll be sharing ideas and collaborating on sustainable development with our members join now and find a space to collaborate with like-minded professionals learn more about sustainable business and inspire others to become more environmental And don't forget to follow Green Element on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram.